Today's readings are Psalm 148 and Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. They can be found on pages 583 and 946 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. And then Luke uh, 2, 22 to 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come into this space, 
and it's a quiet space, we um, look to find something from you that connects with our lives. And our lives are very um, diverse in our experiences and in our faith. And so um, there's an inherent faith that we are putting in you as a, as a very big God who can connect with countless lives at the same time. We look to you in all of our mess, in all of our struggle, and in the joys and celebrations and in the delights of our life. And all the diverse things we bring, we look to you and we invite you now to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And the truth is we need to hear from you, all of us, because we're, we're all more of a mess than we care to admit to each other. We're all more broken and worse off than we even thought. And yet, you move towards broken people and messy lives so that we know in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we thought. We need to hear that over and over again and we pray that you teach us through that grace and through that love today and as we move into a new year that it may be a year filled with learning more about your love and your grace spoken into our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I always find this particular story really fascinating um, as Jesus um, is still extremely young and being taken into the temple and there's these characters that kind of pop out of the woodwork just out of nowhere, um, almost like, you know, Bushman in San Francisco. Have you seen that guy? Like you don't expect, all of a sudden he just pops out and he has this, suddenly this big role in your day <laughs> when he's spooking you from behind this little bush he's holding. I mean, there's, see, there's Simeon popping out from behind somewhere and there's uh, Anna popping out from behind somewhere and saying these things and suddenly they're a part of the story. Who are these people? Where are they coming from? Um, I just kind of find the surprise of it all quite delightful and fun and thought-provoking. And one of the things I specifically want to focus on is what Simeon says. Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. He says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And I wonder if, if you think about that phrase, it, can you imagine yourself ever saying that uh, in your life? Can you imagine getting to a point, or have you gotten to a point in your life where you say, okay, I'm at, I'm at the perfect place now for this to be done? <laughs> some kind of point of arrival, some point of deep satisfaction, you say, you know, God, I'm good now. <laughs> Dismiss me in peace. I personally, I don't know that I've come to that point. I don't ever really feel close to that point and I doubt that most people, I don't hear people talk that way, I doubt that you've had that moment. Um, it's just not really common. Um, but I, I want to think about also, okay, we're at the end of a year. So you look back at your year, look back at 2014. Do you have any of that kind of vibe as you, as you ponder the, the past year? Okay, it is all well. This is a great year dismiss me in peace, you know, into the, as I transition into the next year. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it is, is each year is different from the one before it, and each of your years this past year has been different than the other person sitting next to you or sitting across the room from you. We have different, you know, our, our lives can be sort of cyclical, that we go through different kinds of phases. You could ask a screenwriter, like um, this great... Uh, great 
picture of what a story is that I want to read from, uh, let's see if I can find it here, a um, screenwriter named Robert McKee, who was involved in the movies Forrest Gump, Aaron Brockovich, and The Color Purple. So he talks about stories, and just think about this in terms of our lives. Essentially, he says, a story expresses how and why life changes. It begins with a situation in life um, in which life is relatively in balance. You come to work day after day, week after week, and everything's fine. You expect it to go on that way. But then there's an event. In screenwriting, we call it the inciting incident that throws life out of balance. You get a new job, or the boss dies of a heart attack, or the big customer threatens to leave. The story goes on to describe how, in an effort to restore balance, the protagonist's subjective expectations crash into an uncooperative ex- uh, objective reality. A good storyteller describes what it's like to deal with these opposing forces and calling on the protagonist to dig deeper and work with scarce resources um, and make the difficult decisions, take action despite risks, and ultimately discover the truth. All great storytellers since the dawn of time, from the ancient Greeks through Shakespeare, and up to the present day have dealt with this fundamental conflict between subjective expectation and cruel reality. Well, you know, I quote that because I think that gives, gives you a hook for, or maybe four different hooks for where are you right now? Where, where has this year left you? You know, are you, are things pretty predictable and comfortable and in balance? You know, you're at the beginning of one of those cycles of a story. Or has the inciting incident just happened and it's still very disorienting and you haven't even begun to move through it? Or are you moving through a very imbalanced situation in your life and you're fighting for that, what he calls um, in that quote, I think, subjective, uh, idealistic hopes for reality, I forget how he put it. But there's also the cold truth of reality and it's kind of this battle between life isn't what, right now what you wanted it to be? Or are you in that fourth phase, you know, where you've kind of reached a new balance? It's sort of a new calm, rest, celebration. Well, I think as you evaluate a year, if you're going to look back at the next year and move into the, the new one, I don't think you can just say, well, this was a good year because there was balance and there was predictability. Or this is a bad year because some big thing blew everything up. I don't think you can just say it was good or bad based on that. I don't think that that's going to help us grow spiritually in terms of looking at our life and looking at our year. I think that the, the thing to think about, regardless of that, regardless of, you know, it's been good, it's been bad, circumstance-wise, is your receptivity um, to God's constant availability in each of those ups and downs. I get that just from Simeon. If you look at what Simeon says there in verse 29 and 30, the reason that he's able to say, okay, I evaluate things as being okay now. I'm in a good place now. And his reason is in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He has, he's perceived what God is doing in the midst of his life. And I think if we're going to do that, if we're going to say, like, how do we, how do we you know, perceive God's reality in our lives moving into the next year and looking back at this past year, there's two things that everyone must examine. 
if you're going to be more perceptive to God's, what Simeon calls God's salvation. Two things. Everyone just must examine these two things. The first is idols, and the second is practices. So first, idols. If we're doing an introspection, stopping at the end of the year, something to think about is idols. Now you see Simeon in verse 25, he's described as being righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That had to do with the, you know, how the story of God was going to play out for God's salvation and the Messiah coming. So, okay, that's what he's leaning into and waiting for. That's a description of his life. That's what he's striving for. When you think about idols, you think about, okay, what is the thing that maybe isn't God, that isn't waiting on God's salvation? What is the thing in my life that I'm, I'm really actually in practice striving after? You know, where am I putting all my chips, as it were, in life? Where am I, where am I you know, what's leaving me wide awake at night pondering this and that and the other? What is it that I'm chasing after? What am I losing sleep over? And, um, I, you know, I quote Tim Keller a lot, and he... Um, he was actually quoted in an article that came out in um, the Washington Journal. Um, and this is what, this, so this is, uh, this is a really recent article a couple weeks ago, and a lot of people were passing this around on Facebook. This is what he says. He says, everyone has a God. Everyone has a way of salvation. We just don't use the term. St. Augustine would say, what makes you what you really are is what you love most. Mr. Keller adds that he likes, to, he likes to show secular people that they're not quite as unreligious as they think. They're putting their hopes in something and they're living for it. For ambitious, driven New Yorkers, it's often a career, he says. I try to tell people, the only reason you're laying yourself out like this is because you're not really just working. This is very much your religion. I say, you know, you say... What were my idols in 2014? What was my religion? What was I laying myself out for in the past year? John Calvin um, once wrote in his commentary on the book of Acts that every one of us, even from our mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. Every one of us, even from our mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. So if you look back at 2014 and you say, okay, I think it was really good or I think it was really bad. I'm trying to evaluate myself spiritually. What kind of year was it? Why do I not feel at that point where I say, oh, what a, what a good solid year. Dismiss me from 2014 in peace. Idols probably got in the way. That's probably what leads to your evaluation. There's probably some sense in which there's some pretty dominant things that took center stage. You're not alone in that. That's everyone as John Calvin says, from their mother's womb, creating and crafting new idols. And there's a good chance that your idol connected in some way with, um, with hedonism. I'm going to throw that word out because that's a word that one of my old professors in seminary uses in an article he just wrote recently about what he calls North American idolatry. The center stage idolatry of North America is hedonism, which is the pursuit and living for pleasure. So he writes all about this, and he, the fascinating quote um, that he says, Hedonism imperils human welfare by undermining the divinely designed benefits of marriage, family, education, the economy, justice, morality, and religion. 
Hedonism is not a sustainable lifestyle. It consumes more than it produces, lives off the work and wealth of other people and previous generations, and it fails to maintain a sound, natural, social, economic, moral, and spiritual environment for future generations. He says, we want pleasurable experiences far too much. Spend too much time and money pursuing them and allow them to absorb too much of our mental and spiritual energy. We pursue them in wrong ways and expect too much happiness from them. They squeeze out more important things. Our lifestyle suffers from internal tension, spiritual laziness, immature discipleship, poor stewardship, and failure to seek, God's, seek first God's kingdom. So that's Dr. John Cooper saying some pretty harsh things about our culture's idolatry. Well, and basically, this is the message on idolatry. If you're, what are you striving for? What are you pushing for? What are you living for and waiting for? If it's anything other than God, you'll never be satisfied, and you'll ring in the new year singing along with Mick Jagger. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try and I try. That's what idol, that's the song of idolatry. Putting something in your life that cannot satisfy you the way that God promises to. All right, so <clears throat> let's move into the second one briefly. So we have idols. Examine your idols. Examine your practices. What's another fascinating thing about this story, I talk about these people coming out of the woodwork um, and suddenly declaring what this baby means. So they are perceiving. These are Simeon and Anna. They are in deeply in touch and they're perceiving that God is at work in what the rest of us would have been oblivious to. And in fact, there's, there's people just milling about all around what's happening in the story. Almost all of them oblivious to that anything big is happening in terms of God. But these people perceive it. Why? Well, one of the things you can note about this story, I don't think it's meant to be the huge focus of this story, but it definitely complements it and it's just there. The descriptions of these people all involve their practices. They're practices that make their life open to receiving and to recognizing God when he shows up. You've got Simeon, described as being, being there, um, spending his whole life kind of connected to and, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. You have actually before that, you have Mary and Joseph being described as devout people who are going through the natural rhythms of first century Jewish spirituality. And they're bringing their child to the temple just like they're supposed to do. They're going up to Jerusalem. You know, they're going through these practices that are the faith practices of their people. And then uh, Anna, in verse 36, she's described as being an old widow who's been a widow for a very, very, very long time since she was young. And now she's very old. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. That is her description. That's what we're told about her that she's engaged in these practices that came to be standard practices for those who were seeking God in the Christian faith in the early centuries of the church. There's a writer named Tony Jones who writes um, a great book, and I'm trying to think if I even have the title of it, because um, I, I made printouts, and so I don't think I even have the title of it. Yeah, it's called Sacred Ways. That's the name of the book. Tony Jones, and he describes his own journey, digging deep into the early centuries of the Christian church and the practices that people were employing 
to connect with God. He talks about how orders of monks were gathered around vows of celibacy and poverty, and the desert fathers and mothers often practiced silence and fasting. So he, he talks about this and just about how this is a normal part of the Christian journey. It's, it's not often brought up in today's Christian world, but it's, there's these whole set of practices that in the past is a rich uh, toolbox really for Christians to grab hold of, to have practices in your life that make you open and available for when God does work. When God, you know, when, when God is active, you see it, you experience it. And um, he talks a little bit about how we, we almost, for some reason, don't apply common principles of practice that we, we relate to certain things in life like, you know, your resolutions that you're going to make for the new year and exercise and sports and all these other things, learning an instrument. And we apply these general principles of, yeah, well, if you want to grow in that, you put in time and you practice. And he says, for some reason in the spiritual world, we just put that whole mentality aside and just assume that either I'm going to grow or I'm not and it's just going to be the luck of the draw. Um, so he says, he says, actually, it seems the Christian life is more like being a baseball shortstop. A young player can watch videos, read books by the great shortstops of all time and listen to coaches lecture on what makes a good shortstop, but what will make him a truly good shortstop is getting out on the field and practices. So he talks about the ancient Christian traditions that are practices, and he says all of these examples demand practice. And I propose you begin to imagine the Christian life in much the same way. You've probably had some experience practicing an instrument or working out in a committed way or becoming better and better at chess. Take the same commitment you used in that endeavor and apply it to one or two spiritual disciplines. I mean, that's it, just very simply, as you transition into the new year, consider what's this last year been like in terms of idols and in terms of practices? And as you move into the new year, what is the idol to focus on? What are the practices that will open your heart up to whether you're up or whether you're down? Whether it's peaceful, it's been disrupted, or whether you've found resolution, wherever you are, amidst any of those phases, what are the practices that will be in place throughout the year consistently so that you'll see God, so that you'll experience what God's grace has to offer you amidst whatever you're going through in 2015. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we look to you and ask for your grace and Holy Spirit to make your grace come alive in our life. Um, we beat ourselves up so often in one way or another. We work so hard, we strive after things, and the great treasure has been given through your son Jesus, already credited to our account, already delivered at our doorstep. Help us to open new doors in our lives to receive it. Help us today, tomorrow, the next week, month, year, to have our hands extended regularly, that we might receive what you've done on our behalf. Because, God, it is true that these characters in the story did not do anything for themselves. But when you did something, they received it. When you arrived in their lives, they saw it, they perceived it, and they celebrated. 
And God, the salvation that comes through this one named Jesus, whose very name means Savior, it comes to us as something that we cannot do. It is something you do and we can only receive. So form and shape our hearts as usable and as receptive in this new year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.